I'm Lino Sangren and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Welcome to another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Cinepod, we sometimes call it. We do. It's it's short. It's sweet. You know, it's it's yeah. easy to find on Facebook. It's Facebook slash Cinepod. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's, it, it works. Zipier. Do, do you regret that we didn't call it Cinepod from the beginning? You know, I think people might have felt deceived not knowing what this is. But, yeah. you know, uh, we but at the same time, we registered that on Facebook immediately. And it seemed like yeah. a nice short URL. But then, you know, life happened and we thought cinematography podcast. Yeah, that, that, that'll work. <laughs> People are always like, what's your cinematography podcast called? And I'm like, oh, uh, it's called the cinematography podcast. <laughs> so uh, so who do we have on the show this week? Uh, returning to the show is Lena Sangren, who, of course, shot the uh, latest James Bond film, No Time to Die. And also, Don't Look Up. That's right. And also, Don't Look Up. That's true. Two movies, and uh, we get into this in the interview, that could not possibly look less like one another. They are so uh, vastly different in their look, in their approach, in their visual approach. And uh, it's hard to believe the same extraordinarily talented guy shot them both. But he he was amazing. And it was cool to talk to him about making both of those movies. And uh, I I don't know. I kind of don't want to favor one over the other. They're they're just so both so interesting. And uh, everyone has already seen James Bond, probably. If you haven't seen Don't Look Up, it's on Netflix. And uh, definitely worth your time. Great cast. Really biting satire. Love it. Hey, uh, Ben, I think before we get too far into close focus or anything else, I think we should do a little bit of fan mail. We got a really great bit of fan mail here that I, I'm going to do my best to try to give a, a truncated sort of extracted because it's a pretty long email here. But it turns out that a longtime listener in Bulgaria... Whoa. Who is a graduate of the local film academy a few years ago, has been so inspired by our podcast that he has started his own cinematography podcast in Bulgaria. Yes. Isn't that awesome? That's cool. He writes that a few years ago as a student, he was shooting a children's football league. And I'm by football, I'm sure he means soccer. And he says the matches were unbearably boring. I've seen mm. some kids soccer. I have, I, have, I have an understanding of what that might be. I'm, I might have it, seen some kids soccer yesterday. So, yeah. <laughs> and he says the only way he didn't die of boredom, apart from the cold and heat in the different seasons, was the mm. fact that he had the opportunity to listen to your interviews with Matthew Libatique and Wally Fister. He says, you have an wow. extremely fun and exciting way of hosting the show. And well, then, thank he goes, you. then he goes on to explain, uh, you know, where Bulgaria is, assuming that we just have no understanding of it. But, uh, but anyway, I actually could, could I put it on a map? No. Do I roughly know where it is? Sort of. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, he's started interviewing uh, local directors of photography and has a whole list of all the people he's done who've worked on these major productions. And a lot of it's all true. A lot of Hollywood films have been going to Bulgaria to shoot recently. And actually, I know one major lens manufacturer who makes cinema lenses in Bulgaria. So it's mm. like they, they have a, a different name on them that doesn't represent Bulgaria. It's a, you know, it's, it's a German brand. But anyway, made, made in Bulgaria. And uh, anyway, he says, be healthy, invite more cool guests and stay on focus. Some practical advice 
advices about hosting a podcast will be more than welcome. So uh, I, I don't know what sort of practical advices we can give, but I, I, I have the same advice I give everyone who's thinking about podcasting and that's ready, fire, aim. Just start doing it. Just start doing it. The cost is low. Put it out there. See if people respond to it. Keep on keeping on. It's a fun thing to do. It's kind of journalism. It's kind of conversation. It, it can be so many things. So it's very worth it. What is the name of his podcast? Can we plug it? It's called Obrazi, which he says in Bulgarian means faces and images. It's a play on words. And uh, he's got a link here actually to his SoundCloud. And so uh, oh, in cool. the show notes, we'll put the link to his SoundCloud. And I believe his name is pronounced Damien, but I'm not a hundred percent sure that's how he signs it. Mm -hmm. So Damien, thank you so much, of course, for this great, wonderful uh, fan email. It really, really was uh, terrific to read. And we're, we're excited that you've created a podcast and anyone who, who's as interest in checking out your Bulgarian cinematography podcast, they should a hundred percent go to the link in the show notes and uh, check it out on SoundCloud. It's called Obrazi. I know I'll check yeah. it out. Although if it's in Bulgarian, I probably won't be able to make heads or tails of it. Yeah, I, I, I will go listen to it as well, too. But I, I have a feeling that I'm linguistically challenged in this regard. So uh, but, you know, I'll check it out regardless. I'll give them an extra download for sure. For sure. Anyway. So, Ben, close focus today. What, what's uh, what's going on in the world? Well, I wanted to talk about something that really kind of blew my mind. For those of us who are Star Wars fans with Disney Plus, uh, we've been enjoying all of the uh, Mandalorian and looking out for the future of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. And in the middle of that, we got the book of Boba Fett. And on paper, Boba Fett seems like a character who'd be great in his own series. Hadn't really been getting into it. I've been trying, I've really been trying. It's not a bad show. It just wasn't like really grabbing me the way the Mandalorian did. And I think that the answer that we would all come to is because it has no baby Yoda in it. Grogu was the thing that kind of kept us going. So I don't know how this is going to ultimately play into the book of Boba Fett, but they basically just did a two episode arc that was just the Mandalorian. No Boba Fett, no Boba Fett in either of the episodes, two episodes. And the second episode featured a training montage of just slightly older than Return of the Jedi era Luke Skywalker training Grogu, training the baby Yoda. And it was pretty phenomenal leap beyond the Luke Skywalker that we all saw in the season finale of the last season of The Mandalorian, which looked kind of stiff and plastic and not that great. Well, so it turns out that there was a YouTuber who does deep fakes who took that footage and built a deep fake with real Mark Hamill and blew their minds. And so for this, they hired him to come in and do it all with deep fake technology, which in itself is quite cool. And when you look at it, is it 100% convincing? I would say not 100 and beyond all uncanny valleys convincing. But I'd say if I didn't know that that was a digital person or digital face, because they, they have an actor acting out the role, I wouldn't question it. It's pretty damn close to lifelike. But here's the craziest thing of all to me was that Mark Hamill did not voice it. Uh, they used an application called Respeecher and they fed Mark Hamill's ADR from Return of the Jedi. And also he had been in a Star Wars radio play playing Luke Skywalker and a bunch. So they got a bunch of like his audio from that time and fed it in. And basically, as far as I can tell in my limited research, Respeecher is like deep fake for people's voices. So they were able to take this actor's performance, the actor who was standing in for Luke Skywalker, and they were able to map Mark Hamill's 
facial expressions onto him and put him in the correct lighting and everything and it looked pretty good on my 4k television and then in addition to that i had assumed that they brought mark hamill in to do all the lines apparently mark hamill did not set foot into a recording studio to do any of the lines i'm assuming they just used the other actor's lines and then re-speecher synthesizes a mark hamill voice reading off of the original actor's performance which is uh awesome and also kind of creepy what do you think? <laughs> yes, I agree. Both awesome and creepy. And I'm also, I'm with you. I'd say that it was 95 to 98% right for the, the deep fake look. I was going to say they look remarkably good. But I will say that I noticed they didn't do a lot of motion. The Mark Hamill in this is very, very still. And I have a feeling that it was probably much harder to get what they need to have happen with a lot of motion or a lot of action or anything like that. So good on them for having a story where, you know, the Mark Hamill character doesn't need to move around very much, but also the voice, it wasn't quite right. It wasn't quite right, but it was again, so damn close. That's like, yeah, for all intents and purposes, it was better than hiring a, a sound alike, uh, you know, a, you know, having someone overdub. I think that Mark probably could have overdubbed and sounded pretty close to the way he should have sounded himself. But even then, he's an old man now compared to when he made those. So it, there yeah, would I mean, have been some his, some his voice is different. I wonder I wonder if he could have pulled it out, though, because, you know, Mark Hamill has become one of the most in demand voice actors who it's ever true. lived. It's true. S- so yeah. I wonder if he could just turn on young Mark Hamill, you know, I, probably mo- you know, even a great actor like Robert De Niro would probably have a hard time pulling out young Robert De Niro voice. But Mark Hamill, I, probably. But I also kind of feel like if you look at it as the technological challenge that they put in front of themselves, they kind of met it. And I feel like one of the only giveaways to me that something was up was just in the way they used coverage. Hmm. It felt like when I was watching it, it was like, well, they're really not staying on Luke Skywalker for a line that probably ordinarily they would. But I also kept thinking, like, if I can accept this uh, pu- literal puppet Grogu as a living creature, which then, I do. Then you like, can totally accept. Yeah, I, I, I can roll with a, a slightly. It, it's like the uncanniness of the uncanny valley became like 10% of what I'm used to. I mean, even think about like Tron Legacy, which was like, what, 10, 11 years ago. Oh, yeah. With young Jeff Bridges. It, it, it blows it away. Which in itself, that was kind of a revolutionary thing that they did. And I felt like it was not a 100% successful in youthening or Rogue One, where they recreated Peter Cushing and also young Carrie Fisher. That's right. Um, Not entirely convincing, not terrible. Like you kind of roll with it. But I feel like this, the suspension of disbelief was so much less than it's ever been. And you kind of figure like this, and this is kind of the nature of what they've been doing with these Star Wars series. When you think about like with the Unreal Engine location thing that they've been doing where, you know, it's like almost all, you know, where they're shooting in the volume as, as uh, Greg Fraser told us about, it's like they are pushing technology, but they're pushing it in television where the budgets are lower and the schedules are shorter and they're able to still kind of pull out the stuff that, you know, is better than what you see in a lot of feature films. I just thought it was, uh, it was noteworthy and it's a trend that I'm sure we're going to see more of like how long before we see Marilyn Monroe pop up in something. I mean, all it takes is an actor's estate to be okay with it. And uh, you could have dead celebrities or you could have younger versions of living people out the wazoo. And I feel like it's, it's more impressive than the Irishman. It's more impressive than every time I've seen this technology used. And we've all seen it a bunch of times. This is probably the best version of it I've ever encountered. 
you know, I mean, there's all these fake voice programs for composers and stuff out there, like the Vocaloids and stuff like that. For someone who really wants to get into trying to, you know, who can't sing but wants to do create digital voices and singing, I can only yeah. imagine what the near future is going to hold for that sort of thing, too, because you're going to be able to deep fake AI machine learning all sorts of audio in ways that's probably going to be so much better than the visual counterparts and so much faster, depending yeah. on what it is, that it's not only going to be can you trust what you see? Can you trust what you hear? And the answer to probably both of those things will be no. So if you weren't yeah, there. You know, you, yeah, you know, you've been saying that for a long time. And I've been on the other side being like, look, my eye can tell when the stuff is fake. And I feel like we're getting closer and closer to when it will be harder to pick apart. And the real question is, I don't know what the name of this phenomenon is, but like think about the first time you saw Jurassic Park and how amazing the effects looked. And then like five years later, watch it again and go like, oh, I, that all looks like CGI. I wonder if five years from now we'll be like, oh, yeah, I, my eye just can tell that's a deep fake. No, that no, I, I don't think that's the case. And I and here's the thing, because when Jurassic Park came out and people went, oh, wow, this is really amazing. No one actually 100% was like, that looks real. And I know I wasn't. And that, you know, the, the, the teenage version of myself sitting in that, that theater did not go, that looks real. That looks great. And it certainly looked great, better than other CGI. I would say all CGI probably up until that point. But oh, watch it two or three times. The first time you see it, you're not expecting it. Oh, my God, this is incredible. Dinosaurs are running past. You go back and watch it a couple times. You go, mm, yeah, especially if you look at it critically. There was a lot of people who said, no, it doesn't look real. It still looks great. And we're getting to the point now, though, where it does look real and it's really hard to tell. Yeah, no, it's pretty interesting, though. And and I I mean, I feel like we all think about the nefarious uses of this kind of stuff. But I also always look at the filmmaking uses for it sure. and how f filmmakers can like if you set out to make something and you were going to do you knew you were going to deep fake stuff. So you were able to collect all the data on the actor that you wanted to use or whatever. And I mean, this is a perfect example. You have permission to do it. You're able to extend stories, you know, in this case, a story from what, 35 years ago. And you're able to, without really asking that much of the audience in terms of suspension of disbelief, you're able to keep that story intact and alive. And I, I, I don't know. I don't see a downside to it from a filmmaking standpoint, from a, you know, you decide to hoax something with like political figures or something like that it's gonna the world's about to get very confusing i predict that there's gonna be someone who comes along and says we're gonna you know redo clerks with james dean and alan rickman it's going to be like <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna deep fake them through i want that movie right now and if someone's <laughs> listening to this and they can do this deep fake stuff i want the james dean alan rickman clerks that's all, all day long <laughs> And, you know, that's sort of what's been happening with deepfake on, on YouTube with certain scenes with like, you know, Jim Carrey replacing, you know, Jack you, Nicholson in The Shining. Exactly. Yeah. So, so people doing scenes and stuff like that. But as it gets easier and better and more convincing, I mean, the mashups and the, the capabilities, it's, you know, the sky's the limit. Who knows what will happen? Dang. Well, I got to learn how to use those programs. Anyway, let's go ahead and get to our interview with Linus Sundgren. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I am here today uh, talking transcontinentally. In, you're in Sweden, right? Yep, that's true. That's amazing. Uh, with Linus Sangren, cinematographer who is, I believe, going to get some Oscar love from, uh, if not one, both amazing films, Don't Look Up and No Time to Die, the last Daniel Craig James Bond movie. Both are, uh, are, are just amazing movies. Thank you so much for uh, making the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
So is it just an accident because uh, No Time to Die had a delayed release because of COVID that both of these movies are kind of hitting at the same time and both are, I think, aimed for the Oscars? I think, uh, yeah, you're right. It's like a delay on Bond, obviously, uh, one and a half year, basically, from the original release date. And uh, Adam McKay's film had a a quick turnaround. We shot it. uh, We wrapped in March. Wow. Yeah, so it's both films are coming out at the same time, basically. But with a big delay. That's cool. Yeah. Well, even though even though like theatrical is still a little tentative because of COVID, people are going back to the theaters and No Time to Die was a, a huge theatrical hit. But it's it's oh yeah. It's gotta be cool to have two movies in theaters. When you spoke to Ilya last time you were at Camera Image, the festival that's heavily focused on cinematography in Poland, you were just about to go off and make No Time to Die. And No Time to Die, I kinda just wanna ask like, what was the pressure? knowing that you were finishing up the Daniel Craig, James Bond movies, what was the pressure? What was the uh, excitement factor of kind of taking the helm of that and knowing that that was going to be the last one he did and uh, no spoilers in the podcast, but you know, it's, it's very much finishing that character's arc. Right. What was it like kind of, and knowing that you had to like fill shoes that had been filled with people, obviously like, you know, Roger Deakins, I I shouldn't say filling the shoes, but you were kind of stepping into the same role that had been handled by so many amazing cinematographers before you. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously a a great honor, I think, to get to shoot uh, one of the Bond films. And um, like you said, it's a challenge, um, obviously. And that's what is fun i think it's fun to take on challenges things they haven't done before and things that may seem a little harder than normal is is sort of great to do i think to challenge yourself but it was with a great you know joy i got into it rather than uh, uh, fear uh, because i was just so happy to be considered and to be uh, from when i was talking with carrie you know we had a great discussion about how he wanted to uh, you know make the film and i got very inspired by that and i think I think every time you make a film, you always have to think about each project uh, for what it is, you know, for try to focus, really focus on that we're making this film and and not think so much about uh, what's been there before or how other people did it. Um, It's more about like, what does this uh, story ask for? And if you try to always start in that end, it's sort of the other things sort of disappear a little bit. Of course, it is it is a big responsibility to carry sort of the flame and make something uh, just as great as the other ones. You know, I mean, uh, I look up to these uh, filmmakers who did the other bonds uh, ever since the beginning. I was very inspired, you know, as a, as a teenager watching, uh, especially Roger Moore's films, but also Sean Connery, obviously, I saw on TV and whatever. And onward, mm-hmm. it was very inspiring but um, yeah, the focus became right away very much on uh, on just like with any film, like uh, what does this story ask for, you know? And I tried to break it down in a few words in the beginning between me and the director to sort of try to um, find our path or, or how. And slowly you sort of build your language together. And once you have your language and you feel confident with that, it's like, it's about the execution and that part. But but um, I think in prep, you sort of carry responsibility with so many other people as well. And as long as you feel like you're aligned in the group, you're, you feel strong, you know, it feels good. Well, can you talk about sort of the, the creative process that you and Carrie went through with it? Because it feels very much a piece with the other Daniel Craig movies, but it also, I, I feel like it functions amazingly just as a standalone film. You know, it, it even right. 
does something that I've never seen a Bond movie do, which is it opens on a scene that Bond has nothing to do with. Bond's not even, I mean, maybe there are other ones, right. but it's like, it's it's not a James Bond scene. It's setting something else completely yeah. up. It, it kind of pulled the rug out from under me immediately, yeah. which I know is sort of his storytelling style with, you know, things like uh, True Detective. But you totally. talk about like how you constructed the look and, 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 yeah. and the, the way you wanted to lens it, how to make it like other Bonds, how to make it unlike other Bonds, how to make it its own thing. Right. So exactly. The focus really, uh, I think, was on making it our own bond. Like, let me phrase it this way. <laughs> I mean, we talked about it recently, actually, at uh, Camry Marsh, me and, um, and Kerry, that Kerry doesn't really have necessarily a style that he purposefully tried to adapt to his films. It's not like every film you see looks like a Kerry Fukunaga film. He definitely has sort of a, a taste, right, and a language and and a way of processing uh, how he processes yeah, yeah. His, his sort of projects. And that that becomes significant or like it, it becomes obviously a, a careful Gnaga film. But but um, what I kind of mean is that he doesn't like always shoot anamorphic or he doesn't always like uh, tell the story in a certain way. It's all based on the script and then obviously with his taste. And I have a similar approach. I think part of what I really like when I take on a new project is to hopefully find the story uh, and a script that I haven't really done before. Because yeah. I, I kind of don't like to repeat myself in a way where you always have your look or you always shoot, you know, anamorphic or whatever, like, or I just like to do it this way. And I, I like to take on new projects. And that that's why actually part of that with Bond too was a completely new challenge for me with uh, so much, uh, you know, action and a b bigger, bigger film. But um, I think, um, so what we looked for here was to, one part was obviously the story that was actually being written as we were prepping, because I came on just a month after Carrie and Carrie, you know, rewrote the script uh, completely with the writers. And the, the storyline that we had was the same as, you know, the arc of his character, what, what happens through the story in, in, in rough terms and that you had sort of uh, the characters were there and, and what was going to happen uh, throughout the film more or less, but he had to write the script from start. And I think this idea about presenting Madeleine's childhood in the beginning of the film came with Carrie uh, wanting to do, start the film that way in order to establish, which is obviously very important for the, for the film uh, itself. And if you, that's one of the parts where you don't consider how did they do it before in the other Bond movies, let's, let's do it that way or let's not do it that way. It wasn't about that, it was yeah, about... Yeah. You look at it as a separate story and very important for the story is the relationship between Safin and Madeleine and how that affects the film. So that's why I think people who hasn't seen Bond films before that has seen No Time to Die, uh, I think they can agree that this film is just its own film. It has its own story and, and it could just as well be a story about any person that is not Bond as well. Yeah. But I think At if you've never time, seen a James Bond movie, you could, you could watch this movie yeah. and it would make total sense to you. It's totally. self-contained in a way yeah. that most of them are not. But then on the other hand, I think uh, uh, Daniel and Barbara and Michael, the producers, as well as Carrie, uh, very much wanted to also bookend uh, Daniel Craig's character, starting with Casino Royale and how Inspector uh, threads were kind of loose. And they wanted to explain the whole storyline between Daniel's Casino Royale and No Time to Die being sort of the final uh, and very much sort of just bookending the whole chapter of, of Daniel Craig. So that was also important in the writing. Another thing that Carrie then discussed with me a lot was the sort of expectations that we have on a Bond film is that it should be 
entertaining. It should be sort of a, a joy ride for the audience that we can go through a film and, and feel like it's a one long big adventure, right? Then we start to discuss sort of themes and keywords, um, which to me is really important as a cinematographer. I think it's so hard sometimes, I think, to think about like, what should the look be on this film? It's like, how do you determine that, right? And I feel like I always start with the most simple words between me and the director. I'm like asking the director to give me some words, or I could also propose words from the script. Like, for example, it could be loss, right? Or grief or death or things, things that matters for the story. It may not matter for the entire mm. story or it may not matter everywhere. And then you can position them in the sort of storyline and say like in the beginning, it's like horror and then it's like funny or comedy, <laughs> some other part. The cool thing with the Bond film is that I think it has all kinds of emotions, right? You have everything from horror and you have action and you have love and, and you have the grief and loss in this film and you have comedy and there's so many also sort of genres that you uh, fly through in the Bond movie and mm -hmm. I think they, they have more or less of this in different Bond films, right? Some, some actors brought out much more comedy and, and wittiness and silliness and, and not so much of the seriousness perhaps and others. Uh, has more of the serious tone and um, that was uh, very much for Kerry. He wanted the film to have all of it, but in a good balance. We sort of first create a language. What is the language in the film? And then how does each scene get affected visually? And if you think about it, just thinking about like the beginning of the movie, the beginning is in the ice, icy snow in Norway, right? And it was very important. It didn't look like postcard, pretty wintry images, which it could have done, right? Because it's Norway in winter. It could look beautiful, like you're out skiing and you have that sunny, beautiful, still, no wind and, and just romantic blue skies, white snow. But um, that was going to feel like very isolated, lonesome, a house in the middle of nowhere, very far from any police or anyone that could save you. And then uh, in a also an eerie tone. So because the scene is, you know, like a horror film scene. We very much uh, worked with monochromatic gray skies and icy bluish tones in order to sort of make that part of the scene scary. And then once she goes in the water, right? And then you go into the action sequence in material the next day and it's harsh, uh, bright daylight and sun, which creates a very contrasty look in the, in the city. Yeah, so I think there's a combination of things there. But it's really driven by the emotions in the script, I think, in, in, from my point of view. And this just happens to be a more heartbreaking um, story. Well, uh, you brought up something that I think that really piqued my interest, and I'd love to hear more about it. And if it's something that you do on every movie, but uh, the, your discussion about kind of going through and putting markers for emotions per scene or per sequence or per act or whatever. How do you track that? How do you create that? How do you track that? How does that kind of, how do you, you know, especially on something like a Bond movie where it's like, you know, I don't know what your schedule's like, but it's like one day you're in Italy, the next day you're in London. How do you keep your head where you're supposed to be in the script? I think that that challenge always seems extremely difficult and, and everyone solves it differently. Right. But I think um, it's something I do in prep, you know, like it's the first thing I do in order to find the language. It's like, 
what cameras am I going to shoot on? I don't know. I need to know those words first, like the themes of the film and the feeling that we're after, because it would make a huge difference uh, what format, what lenses, all of that sort of comes, that language that we finally uh, nail into a, a narrow tunnel is based on the script always for me. Well, let's talk about Don't Look Up, which is, you know, you brought up the comedy in, uh, in your James Bond movie to me feels more like, you know, the comedy in John Carpenter's The Thing where you have, you know, <laughs> yeah. characters who are acknowledging <laughs> yeah. the irony of their situation, but right. it's a very serious situation through the whole thing. Yeah. But with Don't Look Up, that is just straight up satire. And it's radically different and it's got a radically different look. So talk a little bit about like what made that different and what attracted you to, to working on a, you know, honestly a wild satire. It was, it, yeah. it's really funny and it's striking looking, yeah. but it's obviously very different looking than a Bond film or La La Land or a lot of the other kinds of stuff that you do. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love Adam McKay's uh, work. I think he's a very interesting director. The script was as funny as the film, I think it was very clear, like what Adam wanted to make with this film. And obviously the theme being uh, really a comment on us today, like mankind today and how we lack the ability to communicate with each other. And we are very much obsessed with, uh, you know, social media and all that stuff that sort of deflect us from the actual reality and uh, which matters. And in this case, uh, the reason he wrote the film was as a reaction to how the world have reacted to the global warming problem, you know. So he wrote it a, a little bit while back and then it's been sort of rewritten throughout the process uh, of the last years. But um, I thought it was, I, I right away felt like I couldn't stop reading it. And it was like a terrific and terrible story at the same time. It's like funny, <laughs> super, super hilarious, but also horrific is what I was going to say. It's like horrific and well, I hilarious. I it's about global warming, but yeah. it, it, it's hard to watch it and not think about COVID as well. Just oh, like totally. how people's agendas hijack the actual solution that could save lives. Always. That's the terrible thing with, with like how, how it works. So it felt like an important film, a really important film actually, and uh, hilarious. So I jumped on, I thought I was very excited um, and it was great to work with Adam. He's a very visual director and has lots of ideas. But um, when I came, came on, I think one of the first things I thought of was that it being, you know, um, a political thriller on one hand, and then it's a satire, obviously, and there's lots of comedy and laughter in the film for the audience. So I felt actually that it was very much important for the base visuals to rather feel like it was a political thriller hmm. because the comedy would anyway come through, you know? So what we wanted to sort of do was to find a, a language where the, the visuals was sort of like, hey guys, this is a serious matter. Let's really take care of this. And then all the, the satire comes with the, the craziness of how the people around them react to this fact and ignores it. And the comedy comes sort of by itself in the writing. So, and Adam loved that idea too. But then there's this other aspect, which is that it was kind of important for Adam to create a contrast between the truth in the story and the, the, the lies, you know, or like the artifice and the reality or like the truthful reality and the artificial counterpart, which would be the media and the social media. And then you have the, the true, what is really happening that was going to be told in a serious way, in a pecular way in mm. with the, the anamorphic 35 cameras. 
when, thi- when things uh, sort of hit the fan and got even more suspenseful in dialogue scenes, we could part, we could like dolly uh, to create tension like with the dolly moves. But also we went a lot to longer zooms, like um, for practical reasons, we actually didn't, for light really, we didn't go to anamorphic zooms. So we went for uh, spherical zooms, uh, like 300 mil, you know, we could be at 300 mil in scenes, in dialogue scenes in order to compress uh, the shots. And so that was sort of an extension to our language, but it was still related to the language. And the other side of the truthful sort of storytelling, which was the 35 millimeter, we would go to, we had another camera set up, uh, Penelope, uh, Aton Penelope with a 40 millimeter macro that I could grab at any moment that when we felt that um, now the lead characters of the film in general, it would be the lead characters would feel like really nervous or really tense and it would be, a, you know, a sweaty moment. Then I would go in and be like inches from their eyes, right? Like when Leo realizes that the comet is coming and his calculations are wrong, like, right? I'm in there with a macro 40 on a spherical macro 40 handheld, like inches from his eyes, you know, like really close, annoyingly close um, <laughs> because he's terrified at this moment. So it felt like you needed to be in there even more real, even more emotional and real, that would be like going even closer to them. So basically uh, it's like that theory of like, the closer you are physically, the, the closer you actually are to the character uh, emotionally too. And then we could step back to the longer lenses and, and we would also film behind the cameras, like in the network, right? In network, for example, you see a lot of shots, like the film camera, we are like seeing a lot of monitors so we can see the sort of other images in the image. And so we did that as well, like in the TV studios and stuff, we would go back behind uh, the scenes sort of and see reality, but we see the artificial world in frame, right? We filmed the artificial world. And so then the contrast then was the artificial world, which would be partly like the daily rip is like a morning show and it's like brightly lit, bright colors. And the settings on those video cameras were like very colorful and, and you will see in the film, we discussed whether we liked this or not, but we discussed and we decided to intercut between film footage, that is the real world, and you cut to a shot and it's like uh, the fake uh, news world, right? Like we have, you, you're in the, in the TV studio camera yeah. images, uh, even if it's two for row still, it would still be like a more colorful and bright image and that would be the TV footage. On top of that, we have like cell phone images, right? Like cell phone footage. And there's like a whole mix of media. And then we had people all around the world <laughs> filming people looking up. Uh, we, we had asked people to film themselves on, on cell phones in different places around the world uh, to expand our universe so that we felt like it took place all over the world. And then we also went to film in Peru and we went to film in Hawaii and to shoot, you know, like people in various parts of the world. You know, we shot this film during COVID and the second wave right over Christmas. Oh man, yeah. And so, yes, we had a huge challenge to to work with the extras because this film had to have a lot of extras, you know, in the film for the story. But and you're, uh, and you're making it before before there's even a vaccine available. Like, there's no way to there's oh yeah exactly there's no way to prevent it. That was I actually no, got COVID. So, My whole family got COVID in January in oh, really? LA. So yeah. No, so exactly. So, so it was a Netflix uh, project, right? And they were very uh, good at, uh, you know, keeping us safe and 
they took huge efforts into uh, the safety of the crew and, and uh, everyone stayed safe. Uh, we never stopped shooting for because they tested every day. It was, it was amazing actually how they handled it. But um, the downside was just like uh, uh, creatively that uh, we had to be very creative with how to shoot. Shoot it to look like scenes where there's lots of people in the shots and you couldn't really have any people. <laughs> So I forgot now exactly how many we had, if we had 20 or 30 extras to work with at any given moment, but those were altered. So they were sequestering for two weeks or something. And then we had them for two weeks. Uh, they were in the bubble and they, we had them for two weeks and we had to use them in various scenes, the same people. Uh, and then th we altered them. So we got new people after two weeks, but those people within that uh, sort of shooting frame, we had to use those people for various scenes. So I, I bet that you could like find the same actors in different <laughs> scenes if you look. And just the, the logistics of that just melt my brain too. Just like that, like yeah, figuring that, out how exactly. to handle that, it. That is the tricky part, you know, like uh, it was tricky, but that also caused us to shoot a little more long lens for those scenes because by compressing the image, we could put them uh, still six feet apart, but like in a long <laughs> line away from camera <laughs> in a slice of, of the, of the sh image. <laughs> So, and then there was VFX methods too, where we just moved people around and we shot plates and we took our time to like get plates of all these people in different places, uh, like for the concert scene, for example. And we just, uh, we, we just played that with lots of same people just moving around in the, in the frame. So it was, it was fun because it was like, um, the film is so wild, you know, so we kind of had the freedom, I think in one way to to depart from reality as well in, in the craziness. But the main important factor was that it had to feel still real because it is, uh, you know, a comment on a serious matter. And again, that was sort of the visual idea behind the film, while Bond is more of a heightened reality sort of escapist adventure, right? So it has another, uh, definitely another tone that focuses more on romanticizing things. And, uh, and Doc Look Up is not romanticizing things. It's like telling the truth, uh, I think was the idea. So that is sort of the difference for me between the films. Well, cool. I think that that's uh, a, a great place uh, to leave it. Thank you again so much for coming back on the show. Before we go, is there anywhere online where people, uh, you don't need a real, people just need to go see some of these, you know, amazing movies that you've shot, but like, do you have a presence online, a website, Instagram, any place where you interact with people? Yeah, I have Instagram. Um, it's Linus Sangren underscore DP. But um, I have, I must be honest and say, I haven't been there uh, in a while, but uh, that's the easiest way. Or uh, also my up, my website is not updated. <laughs> no DP's website is updated. Everybody we talked to is like, yeah, I got to get back to that. That's cool. Well, you were busy making all the movies, so it, it's okay. Thank you. It's been a busy year. Yeah. <laughs> for real. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And I can't recommend both of these movies highly enough uh, to everybody, not just for your work, but they're both just really amazing movies. So th again, thank you for, uh, for coming on the show again. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much. So that was Linus Sangren. I uh, can't wait to have him on for uh, for whatever he shoots next, man. He, he's just an amazing guy. Great insight. And uh, if you haven't already, definitely check out No Time to Die and Don't Look Up. Yes, indeed. Hey, Ben, guess what time it is now? Uh, what time would that be? 
1004. Uh, no, oh what it is, is it's time to pay our bills, our bills for the podcast. We have all kinds of bills, you know, hosting fees and all of the, uh, the staff that, that, that mm-hmm. go into making this thing a reality. And we have to thank our good friends over at Aerie for helping to make that happen. Aerie makers, purveyors of fantastic camera technology systems, optical systems, lighting systems. But I want to talk about their camera rental department. Did you know Aerie rents cameras too? They actually have like, you know, rental facilities. I guess I kind of did that. I did know that because I know that they have some gear that you cannot buy. Yeah. And actually today, it's kind of funny jumping forward because 13 years ago when I started Hot Red Cameras, I met a, a young guy who was working at a company called Able Cine. His name is Andrew Shipsides. And Andrew, yeah, at the time I knew him, he was he was Andy, but now he's he's Andrew. Andrew is, is now the president of uh, North America Airy Rentals. And he's been posting on his Instagram the progress of their new building in New York. And he's been showing these progress shots, these photos of a 3,600 square foot space for events, Whoa. demos, testing, shooting and more and i'm really looking forward to this and i'm really glad that he's he's sharing and posting this because aries you know over the last few years they totally redid their la office they moved to a huge new space for rentals and i know it's fantastic i've been there and i've done some stuff uh, i know they're redoing the new york building they also have this building that they sponsored they built it you know on the property of the asc clubhouse Aerie is really, really just completely kind of like doing a major revamp of all of their stuff, all of their you know, big rental places in Los Angeles and New York as well. So uh, it's really interesting to see what's going on. Anything that is an Aerie product, of course, you can rent from from Aerie. That's kind of kind of like the idea there. So, you know, the Alexa 65 and the Alexa Mini LF and all that sort of stuff. Aerie has rental facilities for all that. And I want to give a shout out to them and to, to Andrew for, you know, doing such a bang up job and, you know, growing with the company and making it sort of the, the thing it is today. So if you are interested in Aerie equipment, you could certainly go have a conversation with the fine folks over at Aerie Rentals and uh, see what they're all about. Awesome. Awesome. And now short ends. All right. So, Ben, that, that leads us to our short end time of the show. What is your obsession this week? Well, uh, I mean, the first half was definitely deep faking of Luke Skywalker. But the other thing that's kind of been uh, holding me in in thrall is this new documentary. It's a four-part documentary on Showtime called We Need to Talk About Cosby, directed by W. Kemal Bell, who is an amazing comedian. And uh, he's about our age. So he grew up, as we both did, with Bill Cosby kind of as an ever-present dad figure on television and uh the documentary is brilliant because i feel like there's a temptation you know like for instance uh not that i didn't like it but there was that documentary about woody allen that was on hbo not that long ago and that was a really good series but i feel like it was mostly making the case about how woody allen really did the things he was accused of and in this case it's i I feel like the burden of proof is lower (laughs) for Cosby because with Woody Allen you you have you know basically a a finite a very finite set of accusers and with Bill Cosby you have dozens of people who all have the same story and they definitely go into that but what I think W. Kemal Bell has done brilliantly as well is to kind of weave in all the things that made Bill Cosby great I mean like he'll just play bits of his stand-up and you're like yeah he was a brilliant stand-up comedian and for instance, stuff I didn't know, like uh, when he was making I Spy in the 1960s, there were no black stuntmen who were doubling actors on TV shows when you had black actors doing stunts. And Bill Cosby insisted that they hire a black stuntman and kind of got that going for 
the entire stunt industry like kind of changed it there are all these things about representation and inclusivity and him kind of breaking down barriers and then interspersed are these stories of the horrendous things he did firsthand accounts from the people who they happen to and i feel like they go just far enough that you get the idea without like needing a trigger warning every five minutes. You're not going to need PTSD therapy afterwards just from hearing it. Although the people who, who live through this are clearly living in, you know, like they're, they're living with a real trauma that happened to them. And what's brilliant about it is that there's this tendency to be like, so-and-so is all good or so-and-so is all evil. And if you go on on Twitter right now and say a declarative statement about Bill Cosby, you know, a million people will come on to defend him. They'll just jump in your shit and start defending him. And also a lot of people will agree with you. And I feel like it's easy to say, assuming these reports are true, and I believe that they're true, that he needs to go away. Like, he should be in jail, and it's a miscarriage of justice that he was let out of jail. However, I think it's also worthy to kind of show all the positive things that happened in our industry as a result of him and how doors were opened for uh, black people in ways that they never had been before. I don't know. It's it's such an interesting and complex documentary, and I feel like Kamel Bell has like perfectly threaded the needle, which I feel like you don't want to go in one direction and make a hagiography about Bill Cosby and talk about him being a wonderful guy. But I also feel like you can't talk about him without talking about the way the industry changed because of him in better in ways that made the world better. But then also acknowledge that in aggregate, none of it matters because, you know, he's basically a serial rapist. I know that uh, the Cosby documentary was just had its premiere at Sundance and yeah. it, it generated a lot of buzz and it's really, it's really interesting to see or to hear the reactions from people now that it's uh, over on Showtime. I have not seen it yet. So I, I get to live vicariously through, you know, you and from you know our producer, Alana, who, who watched it as well, who gave me the, the report, but you know, an actor who played a character that was really associated with so many pe- people as wholesome and as like the jello guy. And then to, to find out that he's this incredible sex monster. And then to do this deep dive, I have a feeling that uh, there's going to be quite a few people who kind of feel like they already know the story and they don't need to watch it. But, but I don't know. We'll find out. I fa- I mean, I knew the story and I still wanted to watch it because I like the way W. Kamau Bell puts his ideas together. I was interested in his take. And I think that it's the kind of thing where I feel like he's saying, yes, acknowledge all the terrible things he did, but you can't also leave all the good things he did on the table. Like, it's easy to look at somebody like Harvey Weinstein and be like, yeah, the world would have been a better place had that guy never been in any kind of power. He didn't make the world a better place for anyone. He just distributed movies and produced movies that people wanted to see. And that's about it. But with Cosby, there's like, and again, I'm not in any way saying that anything should have happened to this guy besides he should have gone to jail. He probably should have gone to jail decades before he did. Definitely should have. I mean, like the earliest accusations against him are from the 60s. So this guy was was bad news in so many ways. But I guess that's what makes it interesting is that he can be a horrible person who somehow managed to do a lot of good somehow. And also, I should say, Showtime has just been killing it this year, man. Uh, between the new Dexter, Yellow Jackets, and this, like they're putting out some of the most interesting content um, 
Oh, I, there I am using that word. Using that <laughs> word. <laughs> They're putting out some of the most interesting we swear jar for swear <laughs> every, jar for content. Every time I say content, no, like every time I say content, you can just walk over here and punch me in the nose. Ooh. Uh, ben Cat should be adding a sound effect right now. <laughs> that that sound. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but Showtime's just been killing it. Like they've been doing uh, really, really great work. And I feel like Yellow Jackets became a show that everyone was everyone was talking about, which is why I started watching it, you know, and uh, the new Dexter I was probably going to see no matter what. And this is something that's like it's it's a little ballsy, you know, it's a little I don't feel like as a network they're like risking anything by putting it out. But I feel like it's a somewhat controversial subject. There are people who will defend Bill Cosby to the end. And uh, I think they're misled. But it's interesting to see this whole story done with this much care. So, Ilya, now the time it has come, and what is your short end? Well, it may feel like somewhat of a cop-out, but I have to do Ozark again, because now I've watched all of the season four, which turns mm-hmm. out that has been released. They're broken up into two parts, so here it is. I yeah. binged through it, and then voila, what happens? Uh, there's still going to be like four more episodes that are going nice. to come out at some point in the future i don't know when i don't know where they're not saying and of course they start off this whole arc with sort of like a flash forward and then everything else is sort of like i don't know flashback or something so i I think they did a really great job you know kind of tying up what loose ends there were but at the same time now i'm just feeling sort of uh crushed like i don't know why we we why i'm gonna have to have a you know a hiatus before going back to the show to get the final four episodes or final whatever it is. And uh, anyway, I, I, I love the show. I don't want it to run forever. I want it to have a great ending. And if, you know, if having to do it this way is one thing, but supposedly an executive producer has been talking to the media and saying like, oh no, we wanted to make sure everyone could really catch up and blah, 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 and really build up the end. So I don't know. We'll, 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 we'll see shit. what it is. I, yeah. I, I, want, I bet, uh, I don't want to speculate about something I don't know anything about, but my guess is, the pandemic might have played a part in that, <laughs> you know, like, like <laughs> it be. might have slowed down production a little bit and they weren't able to do the whole season in one fell swoop. Yes, that could that could very well be. But definitely, I feel like it's it's tight and they did a, a really good job of, you know, I, w- I would say there's not as many extras and and cast. It definitely looks like, you know, if ever there was a season that was produced during the pandemic it's this one but no it's it's uh still it's just as taut and just as entertaining and boy i I guess now i can't wait for the for the real finale of ozark which uh which i guess is coming at some unknown time cool well yeah i still need to i need to start watching it i started watching the first episode on one of those parents of a toddler days when i just didn't have any attention span and i was like i'm not in any place to watch this now so i uh uh, I, I did it with that, and I uh, and I also did it with Archive eighty one, which I definitely want to see as well. All right, well, uh, well, get on that. <laughs> yeah, in my spare time. Yeah, it's it's not like you're looking after a kid or anything. No, no, that's true. Anyway, hey uh, Ben, where can people find you? Where you know if they want to connect with you, follow you on the socials, all that stuff. Uh, the best place, obviously, uh, as I keep saying, is uh, the Facebook group needs a werewolf. Please come and join us and. Uh, pitch your werewolf ideas but also uh, go to benrockonline.com and you can find all my socials i recently did kind of like a very minor uh cosmetic upgrade of some of the flat art that i had on there but yeah go on there you can find my linkedin my twitter my facebook you know all that stuff friend me on on any and all of those things you know and uh let me know that you are a listener to the podcast how about yourself Ilya? where can people find you uh, Monday through Friday, you can find me uh, over at Hot Red Cameras, although 
I was there this weekend as well, too. We, you know, most people don't know that we have a an on-call sort of like phone line, so that actually on the weekends, if someone calls, we can't do too much for you, but we can be a friendly voice and try to offer you some advice or maybe uh, let, let you know what uh, we might have in stock or what we can get back to you first thing on Monday. So it turns out a whole lot of people wanted some uh, Airy Codex readers this weekend, and uh, I, I got multiple phone calls for it. So tomorrow morning, I'll be uh, returning some calls and letting people know if their Airy Codex uh, card readers are available. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. So anyway, Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. That's that's where you can find me. You can also find me in all the, the other sort of usual socials. It's at Ilya Friedman. And of course, you can go to our website, uh, Cam Noir, and there'll be links to, to Ben and to me and to everything else. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, who do we need to thank this week? Hey, let's thank Kay Zalatrachi, making all this, the music that, we, that everyone heard in this uh, episode. And we yeah. got to figure out a time to get him on the show. We we still do well, and and, and I know Kay's is deep in post on uh, an episode. I, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but it was an episode of something that he directed. Fiction episode. I'm just gonna leave it right there. So I don't. Maybe when he's ready to reveal that to the world, we can have him on. Uh, let's also thank Ben Katz, our editor, who hopefully we didn't make his job too hard today. But uh, Ben, who edits our interviews, whenever we're getting ready to interview someone, the first thing I tell them is these interviews are edited. And so uh, we are trying to make you sound smart. And if you want to rephrase something, just rephrase it. And Ben Katz will cut it out. Ben Katz making everyone sound like we're smarter than we really are. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate that. Very much appreciated. And let's thank Alana. Alana Cody, uh, making sure that this show keeps going strong and that we have plenty of uh, great episodes to come in the future. And Lord knows we do. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think we released three episodes last week. We started, you know, just throwing in Sundance stuff and putting out some of the, the Sundance interviews. There's some really good stuff in there. And anyone who's interested in some of the big movies that came out at Sundance last week or the week before, now you've got a chance to uh, hear us or hear me in particular talk to some of the creative teams. And I, uh, I got to talk to two of them. Oh, I guess that's true. We we yeah. both did, but I, yeah. I I think I did twelve and you did two. It was yeah. it was totally it was totally fair. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Your your statement was accurate. Um. <laughs> that's okay. I, I'm not trying to Alexander Hamilton. You you're you know uh, here with the Federalist Papers. You know? oh. <laughs> oh, you don't you didn't see Am Hamilton? I, I know I've seen Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know Alexander Hamilton wrote like 57 of them, and the other everyone else who was involved wrote like you know a handful. So you, that was you definitely did way more work on the Sundance front than I did. But hey, next year, I'm really looking forward to you taking over next year. You can, you can, uh, I, I mean, I think I'll be able to, my son will be like almost five and, uh, and, and maybe next year we can even go to Sundance again. Maybe maybe, we we can only hope. (laughs) I I feel like, I feel like we're getting close. I feel like, I feel like it's almost over. I I really hope so. I I am so ready for it to be over. Really, really ready. So like, like everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so Ben, I think that's everything. I think that uh, all that's left to do is sign off. All right. Well, then, thank you very much for uh, listening, and we'll see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.